thank you for listening. What is your landmark? Whether I am conscious of it or not, I walk and drive using landmarks. They tell me how far I have progressed, when I need to turn, and when I have arrived. We all navigate using fixed objects that give us confidence we are headed in the right way. In an earlier podcast, I talked about one reason I have chosen to believe in the Bible's uniqueness. Unlike any other religious document, the Bible's more than 40 authors, spanning a time frame of more than 1,500 years, they still tell the same story. But even if the Bible is unique, another question needs to be asked. Is the Bible reliable? Let me explain what I mean by that. Before I can consider the harder questions about God, heaven, morality, or hope, and use the Bible as my landmark, I need to have confidence in what is recorded there. And that is the right word, confidence. If I set out on a journey of hundreds of miles into an area unfamiliar to me, I would want a map that had accurate information. I would use the map to look for landmarks to know that I am headed in the right direction, and when I saw each landmark in sequence, my confidence in both the map and the journey I was taking would grow. And if there was a reason to question the map's information, I might hesitate or even abandon the journey altogether. So how can I establish any level of confidence in the Bible record? Actually, there are many places in the Bible story that I can find a landmark that helps me know that what I am reading is not a make-believe fairy tale. It records historical people and events that I can confirm with outside facts or sources. Even the Smithsonian acknowledges that the Bible is an important resource for real history. And it is not as if the Bible takes place in some unknown land. Ancient Israel was in the midst of a region that was the location for great empires, huge battles, and other major events. We should expect that there are records, structures, and monuments that confirm information contained in the Bible. Remember, what builds my confidence is landmarks along the way that confirm that what I am reading is true. Here is one such landmark. There is an old saying about ancient history, kings talk about kings. What that means is that rulers of nations often were the ones that left inscriptions, statues, records, and monuments, and most of the time they recorded things about themselves. But when they did discuss other nations and other peoples, often the only person they called by name was the ruler of that other group. Thus the saying, kings talk about kings. Many times these inscriptions and monuments were made to tell the story of a great military victory over the other king. The Egyptian hieroglyphs record many tales of a pharaoh's victory over an enemy and how the defeated kings bowed down or were killed by the victorious ruler. But these names that are recorded, both the victors and the defeated, give us points of connection. These intersections in history can confirm or discredit what the source claims about a person or an event. But it also can confirm or discredit the validity of the source itself. 
One of those ancient accounts left by a king is called Sennacherib's Annals. These records are about 3,000 years old, are recorded on three clay objects like cylinders, except they have six flat sides. They are covered in cuneiform writing used by the Assyrian Empire. They are the record of the exploits of a king of the Assyrian Empire, a man by the name of Sennacherib. He was no minor hilltop king either. The Assyrian Empire existed for hundreds of years and ruled huge stretches of territory, including what would today be portions of Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Egypt, Israel, and parts of Greece. Sennacherib himself moved the capital of his empire to the city of Nineveh, using conquered peoples to expand it until Nineveh became the largest city in the world at the time. Some credit the Assyrians for inventing the imperial systems that would be copied later by other empires, such as the Greeks and the Romans. In these records of Sennacherib's reign is a mention of a king in Jerusalem named Hezekiah. The account describes having the Hebrew king cornered, quote, like a bird in a cage inside of Jerusalem. So these records say there was a man named Hezekiah, he was a king, and that Sennacherib took his army to attack him in his city. I can cross-reference those claims with the Bible account. There are great resources available to carefully examine the Bible, both written and digital. A simple search will show that a king in Jerusalem by the name of Ahaz died, and his son, Hezekiah, became king in his place. The account of Hezekiah as recorded in the Bible is quite extensive, including his social reforms, his political failures, and issues with military threats. One of those military threats discussed is the threat made by the Assyrian king Sennacherib. So, two records, independent of one another, confirm these two men lived and were contemporaries. The outcome of their conflict is interesting as well. The account found in the Bible is more extensive than the one found in the Assyrian archive. In the biblical account, Hezekiah makes a threat to break away from the Assyrian Empire, but changes his mind and decides to offer tribute to reestablish good relations. Hezekiah strips gold and other valuables from Jerusalem, including gold from the temple built by King Solomon, and sends them to Sennacherib. In a second encounter found in the Bible, the Assyrians lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. However, God intervenes, and Sennacherib is not defeated, and the city of Jerusalem does not fall. In the account found in the Sennacherib records, there is only one tribute mentioned, and the amount of the tribute collected is different than what is in the Bible account. Should this discrepancy cause us to question the Bible's reliability? There are many ancient examples of accounts such as this where the values and amounts of tribute or captured treasure are exaggerated. Or it might be a more complete accounting of what was captured across the whole region they conquered rather than just the tribute given by the Hebrew king himself. But both accounts agree that at some point Hezekiah paid off the king of Assyria. The other interesting thing about the Sennacherib records is that it never says that this powerful king of the Assyrian Empire ever captured Jerusalem or defeated Hezekiah. That is worth mentioning for two reasons. First, records such as Sennacherib's annals were about boasting. Kings bragged of their great victories. 
Second, no one had defeated or stood against the army of the Assyrians. No one. They were one of the first professional armies in history and were very successful. They had defeated, then destroyed, the northern Hebrew nation years earlier and had taken them away into exile. Why would they fail to take Jerusalem and enslave them like they had done the northern tribes? To sum this up, both records agree about the names of the kings. That tribute was paid from the Hebrews to the Assyrians, and both agree that Sennacherib laid siege to Jerusalem. The accounting numbers are off, but there are a number of reasons that the ledgers might diverge. While Sennacherib's records do not state that he failed to capture Jerusalem as the Bible says, it omits any mention of his success. Sennacherib did not defeat Jerusalem or capture its king. In considering the Bible, if we have a cross-reference of two ancient rulers from different sources, it shows that the Bible cannot simply be dismissed as a work of fiction. The Bible records real history. But since we are on the topic of this Hebrew king Hezekiah, what other independent facts about him can we verify? Let me put this in a more modern context. In 1804, a group of men began a journey across more than half the North American continent. They were called the Corps of Discovery, but they are more familiar to us by the names of their leaders, the Lewis and Clark Expedition. 7,000 miles later, they returned with stories of native tribes, unknown plants, wild animals, huge mountains, immense rivers, and lots of mosquitoes. How could I have confidence that they really did travel such a long way? The only physical evidence of the expedition along the route is a small inscription carved in a rock in Montana that reads, W. Clark, July 25, 1806. The account written during the expedition mentions that they stopped at a place they called Pompey's Tower. The date, location, and description of this rock formation and the Native American art seen there fit perfectly with the physical place in Montana. There is no way to move the giant rock formation, fake the giant rock formation, and the name carved in the rock has lasted the 200 years since. This is a different situation than other, quote, historic sites that you may have seen. Every year, tourists flock to the historic Jamestown settlement in Virginia. But in truth, it is a reproduction meant to show people what they think it looked like, how people dressed, what they ate, and jobs that they performed. It is a simulation, a fake. It is a good teaching tool to illustrate colonial life, but there is still something dishonest about it. Another example is that for many years, the running joke in New England was almost every old hotel had a sign that said, George Washington slept here to draw tourists in, even if there was no record or proof that George Washington ever visited. This is not the confidence, the landmark we are looking for. So let's pretend that the location of Pompey's Tower had been forgotten or lost to history. A person reading the account of the Lewis and Clark expedition might have become curious about it and set off in search of the place. Using the record, they could backtrack the journey and find the rock, the ancient petroglyphs, and the inscription carved in the stone directly linking the place to the story of Lewis and Clark. So reading the account would lead someone to expect to find Pompey's Tower. And they can. 
In the Bible account of the Hebrew king Hezekiah, there is mention that he ordered a tunnel dug. The hand-carved tunnel was intended to connect the water source called the Gihon Spring to the city of Jerusalem. In times of war, the tunnel would channel water from the spring, and the spring itself could be concealed from the enemy trying to attack the city. This is the description given in the Bible. Today, the location of the Gihon Spring is known. Connecting the spring to Jerusalem is a man-made tunnel, showing evidence it was carved out by hand, and it still brings water into the city. A natural spring cannot be faked. Such a massive construction project cannot be faked or moved. If I read the Bible record of Hezekiah, I would have expected to be able to find a tunnel. And it is there. It is Hezekiah's signature carved in stone. Many things in the reign of Hezekiah have no secular or physical analog. But many things do. Hezekiah and Sennacherib were real people and real kings that ruled real nations, that lived in real places and did real things. They are one landmark on our journey to God through the Bible and can help build our confidence that we are on the right path. Can we do this with other stories or claims in the Bible? I believe we can, and thus have confidence in the Bible itself. Follow along on further podcasts as we explore other small truths, so that you may have the confidence to consider the bigger truths. Each truth we find will be a small signpost or landmark along the way. I can learn to have confidence in the Bible record, not just the histories, but the greater message of the Bible, the presentation of who God is, what he has done, what it means, and my place in that story. Again, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you want additional information, you can reach us on the web at truthseekers.org. That's truthseekers.org.